First John chapter three, we're going to look at one of my absolute favorite passages of scripture in the New Testament. Some of you have what's called a life verse. If I have a life verse, it's this one. First John chapter three, verses one through three. The night that I received Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I walked down an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I received Christ and the burden of sin was lifted from me. And I met with a counselor and the counselor prayed with me and then opened his Bible to 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 and he read these words to me. And I never forgot it. It's kind of informed my thinking for the rest of my life. By the way, that happened 43 years ago. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You might want to follow along in your Bible. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure Right here and right now, there's a transition in John's love letter. Remember the letter's theme, fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. Remember how I've already explained to you that there's a difference between fellowship and relationship. Relationship is something that you have by virtue of birth. And fellowship is what you have by virtue of intimacy. In chapter 2, verses 3 through, through 29, John gave a series of tests. Proof, if you will, that we really know God. Remember there was the test of obedience. Do you keep God's commandments in verses 3 through 6? The test of love. Do you really love the brethren in verses 7 through 11? The test of spiritual growth in verses 12 through 14. The test of, of refusing to love this world in verses 15 through 17. The test of truth. Guarding against antichrists and false teachers in verses 18 through 23. The, the, these of allowing the gospel, the, the test, if you will, of allowing the gospel to dwell in you in verses 24 through 27. And then the test of abiding in Christ in verses 28 through 29. So if this first part has been proofs that you really know God, the second part is going to focus on the proofs or the evidence of whether or not we love the Lord. Do you love the Lord? You know, one of the most annoying things that I recall as an unbeliever walking through life, I remember a remarkable amount of Christians coming up to me saying, you know God loves you. 
And I thought, you know, that's nice. Thanks. And then another person would come up to me and say, God loves you. And another person. And another person. And another person. Until I got sick of hearing that God loves me. And finally, in frustration, I just said, how do you know? And the person was, I think, a little shocked. I wanted it to be true, but I didn't really believe it was true. And the person said, well, that's what I believe. And I said, that's not good enough for me. That's not a satisfying answer. I don't believe you. And then people would just simply say, God loves you. And I'd say, I don't believe you. And people would say, God loves you. And I would say, I don't believe you. Until one day, a person said, God loves you. And I asked them that question, how do you know? And they said, in Romans chapter 5, it says that here in his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love isn't a matter of speculation. It isn't a matter of wishful thinking. It isn't a matter that I hope, I pray, I want it desperately to be true. According to the Bible, God has demonstrated his love in time and in space by sending his son. You see, it's one thing to ask the question, do you really believe that God loves you and do you love him? Have you experienced his life-giving love? And that's what this passage is all about in verses 1 through 3. And later we're going to discover, have you turned from sin and sin's enslavement in verses 4 through 9? Have you been marked by love in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17? Do you have a clean heart in verses 18 through 24? Have you tested the spirits of the false teachers in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6? Do you really love each other in chapter 4 verses 7 through 21. So in this passage John speaks in verse 1 of what we are. He speaks in verse 2 of what we shall be. He speaks in verse 3 of what we should be. And like I said, the night that I got saved, a counselor opens this passage and read it out loud. And I didn't really know anything about God. Really. I had read things about God. But I didn't know God and I hadn't walked with God and I certainly wasn't walking in the light. But for the first time, I realized that God really did love me. As foreign, as strange, and as absurd as that might seem. Because in my way of thinking as a 16-year-old, as a I was thinking either God wasn't holy and pure, because if God is holy and pure, how in the world could he know me? Or if he, is, if he really knows everything about everything, and if he really knows me, how could he have anything to do with me? And the night that I got saved... It wasn't because of the threat that I might go to hell. It was the possibility 
that God could love somebody like me. And in John chapter 1 of John's gospel, in verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or, or the authority or the privilege to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I was truly born again that night. And from that moment, I can honestly say I never, no, never, no, never doubted God's love. And in the opening verse of chapter 3, he talks about the privilege of God's love. Look what it says, because again, it's a pent-up expression, an exclamation of joy. John writes, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. When I was a new Christian, we used to sing this passage. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. We would sing it and repeat it and celebrate it. There are religious traditions that keep you guessing whether or not you are saved. And maybe some of you grew up in that religious tradition. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition where someone asks you, are you saved? And you go, I hope so. Do you know so? Well, you know, I guess I'm going to have to wait and die to find out. I go, man, that's way too late to find out. I need to find out on this side of eternity whether or not I have a right relationship with God. John is overcome with emotion and joy as he writes, Behold, or look and see what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. And the word bestowed can be translated lavished generously that we should be called the children of God. And in our culture, and our society, we've somewhat distanced ourselves and incorporated a lot of different meanings to the word love. Some of you are old enough to remember the hippie days of the late 60s and early 70s where people would carry placards and the placard would say, God is love. And that's true. God is love. But some of us began to think that love is God. And that's not true. The Greeks used several different words to describe the facets of love. Three of the words are found in the Bible. One is not. In the popular culture of the Greeks, they had a word for love called storgeo. Or storge, depending on how you use it in the verb tense. But storgeo was a word that described relationship and fellowship in family. The words that are in the Bible are eros or ereo, phileo, and agapeo. Eros is a word that would describe passion, most notably sexual passion. Storgeo, family devotion or family loyalty. Phileo would speak of friendship and relationship. And most of you know the word Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. And then there's that word agapeo or agape. It's a word that describes God's loving kindness. It is the word that John uses exclusively to describe God's love, the divine love, the Christian's love. 
And the word agape speaks of compassion and regard and kindness. And this is the kind of love that motivates God to send his son into the world to suffer and die for sin. But it's also the kind of love that people experience when they become a part of God's forever family. And so it is a love that motivates God to send Jesus, but it's the kind of love that you experience when you are truly, really, legitimately, fully, finally born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more frustrating than to try to be a Christian or want to be a Christian and you've never been born again. The reality, it's not possible to do all of the things that John has asked us to do as far as loving the Lord and loving truth and loving each other. This is the kind of love that Augustine wrote about. He was maybe the first person to suggest, quote, that God loves each of us as if we were the, as if there were only one of us, unquote. But he also wrote, quote, what does love look like? It has hands to help. It has feet to hasten the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sight and sorrows of men. Augustine wrote, this is what love looks like. Love isn't blind or deaf or dumb. Hence, we go back to the idea of compassion and regard and kindness. And this is the reoccurring theme of the Bible. That God loves you. That means he has compassion and regard and kindness for you. Here we're told what we are. Behold what manner of love the fathers bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. That means we're members of God's family. In verse 2, John will give us a hint at what we will become, reflections of God. And the rest of the chapter tells us that we will grow, we'll experience victory over sin in verses 4 through 9. We will grow in our love for each other in verses 10 through 18. We will grow in our confidence before God in verses 19 through 24. We are children of God, according to John, now. At this very moment, it isn't something that we look forward to. It's something that we've already experienced. God's love for us is special. It's one of a kind, not capable of duplication. And so verse 1 could be translated, look what peculiar, out of this world kind of love the fathers bestowed upon us, unquote. This kind of love is not from around here. The writer is basically saying, this is a kind of love that is not natural. It's supernatural. It's alien. It's foreign. And again, what I've already said to you from Romans 5.8, God's love begins. Not when we're cooperating and not when we're friends and not when we're open God's love begins when we are hostile and rebellious and enemies. 
This is remarkable. What sort of love is this? The original construction of the verse means, and this is what it literally says in the text, of what country? The reason why I find that really remarkable is, that, is if you've ever met someone and you couldn't quite place where they're from, and you go, well, what country are you from? I know you're not from around here. And so this kind of love that John is talking about isn't the kind of love that, that they had encountered. The disciple uses this term, by the way, or the disciples in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, when amazed by the power of Jesus, when he stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, they said, what kind of man is this? Same word. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus is different from every single human being who has ever made his way on the planet earth. He is not like anyone. And so it is with God's love. God's love is out of this world. God's love is given while we are in rebellion and sin. And then God's love isn't stingy. It isn't doled out on a need basis. It's extravagant and overwhelming. I've used the illustration before when I talked about this woman in, in Victorian England who, who for whatever reason lived in the middle of England and she had never made it to the coastline and for the first time in her life she visited the ocean and when she saw the ocean she started crying and the, and the man said, why are you crying? And she said, I've never seen anything where there was so much of it that there was enough for everyone. That's what he's talking about. Lavish, extravagant. And so in chapter three, when it says, behold what manner of love the fathers bestowed upon us, many translators add the phrase, and this is exactly what we are. And I think rightfully so. The child of God isn't simply a religious term to describe a theological certainty, but a supernatural reality for everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not possible for people in the world to grasp this concept, let alone comprehend the love of God. Only a person who's truly born again can begin to fully appreciate the impact and import of the phrase children of God. We don't pick our parents. All of you know that. Because some of you know, if I had a choice, I wouldn't have picked these ones. Aren't you glad that you don't get to choose? God makes the choice. You don't pick your parents. God knows your children didn't pick you. We don't pick our children unless you adopt. Yet God chose us. He picked us. 
God loves us. He takes the initiative to save us and then adopt us and then lavish his love in the most undeserving manner. And when we examine our sin and our rebellion in light of God's love, it's supposed to, as my friend Raul Reese says, it's supposed to blow your mind. That is, it's funny when he says it that way, but it's theologically powerful. You have to wonder why God would bother with creatures such as us. He changes us from rebels. He gives us the name children of God and then status. Now we're the children of God, verse two. Again, not wishful thinking, not metaphysical meditations from a wannabe guru. This is a spiritual reality. The choice is made by the Father, and then it's motivated by love. One Bible writer said, quote, Adoption is a legal action by which a person takes into his family a child who's not his own, who has no rights within the family, in order to give the child all the privileges of his own children. In Roman law, as in ours, an adopted child was entitled to all of the rights and the privileges of a natural born child, unquote. You know what's different? In Roman law, a father could disinherit his children. In Roman law, you could cut out your children from estate, money, title, lands. In Roman law, you couldn't unadopt a child that you had adopted. I find that interesting. Someone said that God didn't adopt you because you had straight teeth or a good mind or the hope that you might amount to something. Pity and compassion and love unites with grace. And that's what motivates God. By the way, way back in the Old Testament was the same principle that caused God to love Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord says, The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people, but because the Lord loved you, unquote. You're going to spend the rest of your life, if you dare, ask the question, God, why do you love me? And the Lord will say, do you have a couple of hundred thousand years? Let me sit down with you and let's begin to talk about it. God's love is limitless and powerful and personal. That's what you need to know. Limitless, powerful, personal, and it's directed towards you. I suppose that's why human beings have such a tough time accepting it. So many people grow up in a world where parents or siblings or spouses dish out approval in very small doses. And for some of you, you grew up in a world where love had to be earned. And because you aren't good enough, or because you don't earn enough, or because you don't learn enough, you're rejected. But for the Christian, we don't earn God's love. Rather, we simply accept it. We can't persuade God to love us. You cannot persuade him to do what he already does. 
And so how does that miracle happen? When does it begin? In brief, it can only happen to those who are born from on high. It's a privilege reserved only for those who have received. That's what it says in John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him. And the word received there means to believe. It becomes a reality the moment that you're born again, spiritually regenerated. Like it says in John 3, 3 and 1 Peter 1, 23, where it talks about being born again. Jesus, of course, speaks about being born from on high. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about being chosen by God and adopted by God and accepted by God. We are recipients, heirs, co-heirs. And then we're expected to live up to our new identity, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. We're disciplined if we go astray in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. We're to hold fast to our newfound privileged relationship by being loyal to the Lord. And so in verse 2, he talks about the hope and the mystery of God's love. Look what it says in verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I want you to connect the dots just for a moment. Since God has chosen us as children... He also chooses us to go to heaven. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? If he chose to make you his children, doesn't it make sense to you that he would also choose to keep you with him? I've already admitted my deepest desire is to have my children with me. But they grow up and they make their own choices and they have to live their own lives. John uses a, a term of endearment in the passage. Read it for yourself. It's the first word, beloved. We've already seen this word in the epistle. It's the Greek word that's translated my very special or precious or deeply loved ones. Our relationship and fellowship is in the present tense. Beloved, now we're the children of God. Not when Jesus comes for us. Not hopefully in some distant future. He is our present Savior. But John is going to also talk about the future and what it holds. He says not everything has been revealed. And it's true. There are a lot of things that have been revealed. But there's a lot of things that have remained unrevealed. So we should ask ourselves the question, what's been revealed and what will be revealed? What has been revealed is everything that is told us in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. It's all of the special revelation that has been given by God to the apostles in order to instruct us. And so there's something else. And, and so, again, not everything has been revealed. And what has been revealed is fairly special. 
But there's something else waiting for us, John says. There's someone waiting for us. There's something waiting for us. And there's someone waiting for us. We're children of God. And if that were the only thing that we found out, this would be great news. But according to John, we're something more. We've been born into God's family. We've experienced his kindness and blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But just like those cheesy late night commercials, remember where they bring out stuff and they go, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to give you this and I'm going to give you this. You know the rest. But wait, there's more. This is exactly what John is doing in the passage. He's saying, but wait, there's more. In the future, we're going to share Christ's glory. We see it dimly now. But in the future, we're going to be given resurrection bodies. How do we know that? Beloved, now we're the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, that's Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him. In what way? Will we be the second person of the Trinity? No. It can't mean that. Well, what must it mean? It must mean that Jesus, when he rises from the dead, is given a glorified body, never to die ever again. I've already told you that I think that there's compelling reasons to believe that John wrote the book of Revelation before he wrote this little epistle. In the book of Revelation, he identifies Jesus, who identifies himself as he who was dead, and now he's alive forevermore. Our resurrection will include a body and a soul. And, and by the way, that notion seemed absurd to the people in John's day. Most notably to the Greeks who thought it was impossible and absurd to think that a body could come back to life. And Paul writes about the resurrection of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes that our resurrected bodies will be eternal, immortal, recognizable, one of the big questions I get on the radio program on a regular basis is, will we know each other in heaven? And my favorite response is Spurgeon's response, who said, do you think we're going to be more stupid in heaven than we are on the earth? I love that response, but I think that the real response is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And that is, you are going to speak. Jesus sees you, and you, you see him. You will be known and know. In the resurrection, remember, Jesus in his glorified body sees Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they know each other and recognize each other. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about our resurrected bodies. It doesn't tell us everything that we want to know about our resurrected bodies. People call me up and they'll say, well, what kind of a body will we have? Well, I can only tell you what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it'll be glorious, that it'll be individual, that you'll have identity. It'll be a glorious body, an eternal body. Well, how old will I be in heaven? I don't know the answer to that question other than to say, there comes a point in everybody's life where they reach that peak of maturation and then it's downhill from there. Whatever that peak of maturation is, I suspect that that's how old you're going to be in heaven. 
It's going to be the perfect you, the mature you, the, the, the absolutely perfect you. It's going to be a body that's free of sickness and diseases. Our resurrected bodies will be different from this body. Our body now is subject to decay and disease and disturbance, but our spiritual body will never be weak. It will never get sick. It will never die. We can say that the glorified body of the believer will be like the glorified body of Christ. Not flesh and bones, but a real body incorruptible 1 Corinthians 15:42 glorious 1 Corinthians 15:43 powerful 1 Corinthians 15:43 spiritual 1 Corinthians 15:44 heavenly 1 Corinthians verses 15:47 through 49 the world for the most part seems completely ignorant of this hope. They hear in Christian circles or they grow up in certain circumstances. Hey, you know what? There's going to be a judgment. Hey, you know what? You're going to die. But guess what? There's going to be a resurrection from the dead and you're going to have to stand before God and give an account of your life and they don't believe you. The world, for the most part, completely ignores this hope. In the future, Jesus will be revealed to his people in his glory, we shall be like him. In what way will we be like him? Glorified. By the way, the scriptures are strangely silent about the resurrection body of the unbeliever. What will their body be like? Will it be like ours? Will it be different from ours? The only answer that I think I can give is this. Just like you will be given a body that's appropriate for where you, where you will be forever, they will be given a body that's appropriate for where they will be forever. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some, literally those who do not awake at this time, to shame and everlasting contempt. John hints that we look to Jesus and we look for Jesus. So John's hint is, we look to Jesus, we look for Jesus, and we will be like him. The Greek word translated see is very interesting in the text. It involves way more than just a visual experience. It seems to include the idea of perception, recognition, appreciation. The word see here is a word that in our culture and society is often, we have an expression that we use amongst ourselves. We use the expression, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you see and remember, there's been two times in your life where you go, I don't get it. I don't see. And then all of a sudden you do and you go, oh, I, I get it. I understand. For me, it was like an algebra moment. I don't know how I managed to take algebra one and algebra two. And it wasn't until I was almost done with algebra two that I realized that I had to memorize the formula in order to solve the equation. For some reason, no one ever told me that. 
It's like trying to bake a cake and not have all of the ingredients. If someone says to you, hey, do you want to bake some bread? These are the ingredients that you're going to need in order to create the dish that you want to create. And these are the multiple ingredients that you're going to need. Again, the life application commentary says, quote, in order for people to truly know each other, to see each other as they really are, they have to share similar experiences. Therefore, in order to see Jesus as he really is, Christians must experience the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. This was Paul's aspiration in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Do you remember when Paul says, this is what I sought to know when I was amongst you, and that was Christ and him crucified. In one of the old Star Wars episodes, Darth Vader says to Luke Skywalker, It is your destiny to rule with me. Oh, he put it up there, okay. It is your destiny to rule with me. Here's what John is saying. It's your destiny to be glorified with Jesus. To rule with Jesus. To spend eternity with Jesus. Now I want you to think about this. God's love and commitment doesn't end at the new birth. It doesn't even end when Jesus shows up. But it continues into an eternity forever and ever. All true believers will see him. All true believers will be like him. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may conform to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Here's what John is saying. God has an unfailing, eternal purpose for you. He will make you like Jesus, and God isn't like you. He won't give up. He has unlimited resources. Imagine God says, look, I created the heavens and the earth, the stars, everything in it, but I give up on you, man. You're just too... You're like a wild hare. I can't, I can't work with you. You're a basket case. The Bible says when God makes up his mind to do something, he's going to do it. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he will also glorify. You wake up every morning. You look in the mirror and you might ask the question, God, what do you have for me today? And God's response is, today's the day that I'm going to make you a little more like Jesus. What else? That's pretty much it. God's 
eternal, unfailing mission is to mold you, to shape you, to conform you into his son. One of the other questions I get a lot on the radio is, will I sin in heaven? Will I get to heaven and people will go, hey, I think we made a big mistake here. I know, okay, I know you're in heaven, but somewhere, somehow, people messed up. You're not supposed to be here. Have you ever imagined that you get to heaven and then you say something really stupid and they have to kick you out? And so that might shock you or surprise you. Some people have questions like that. But again, when people ask me that question, I turn to this passage in the Bible, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I say, you know the reason why you won't be kicked out of heaven? Because Jesus will never be kicked out of heaven. For whom he did for... Here it says, therefore the world doesn't know us. We're the children of God. It doesn't, hasn't been revealed what we shall be, but we know this, that that when he appears, we shall be like him. In what way? I already said, glorified. In what way? Stable. Secure. Here's what I'm going to say to you. If Jesus can be kicked out of heaven, you can be kicked out of heaven. What do you think the chances of Jesus getting kicked out of heaven are? That's, that's right. Zero. You're going to be like him. Even though that might be a concept that you can't even begin to imagine what that might be like. In Paul's epistle, he concentrates on the facts that we're going to be with Jesus. And this is most exciting. We're going to be with him and like him. But look what it says in verse 3. The incentive love provides purity. And everyone, everyone who has this hope in his heart purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, think about what John has told us. We have the conviction that we're God's children. Couple that with the fact that Jesus is coming. Our future expectations are centered on him. John is making this statement and everyone who has this hope in his heart purifies himself. The coming expectation is supposed to lead to a practical holiness and a certain hope. If Jesus is Lord and heaven is our future, it should lead us to a practical holiness and a certain hope. Home is where we belong. The coming of Jesus produces hope. Hope in the Bible isn't just a hope like an earthly hope in this sense. You know, at Christmas time, you may have hoped that you got, I don't know, a hoverboard. Thank you, Scott. You hoped for a hoverboard. Or, you hope that the Broncos will win at least the first round in the playoffs. That sounds like maybe yes, maybe no. 
But hope in the Bible has nothing to do with uncertainty. It has everything to do with a fixed certainty. Hope in the Bible is something that is beyond doubt. We are children. Jesus will return. The promise of Jesus' return should motivate you to a pure life. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, An unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. The unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. I think that that's right. John's reason for writing about the return of Jesus is only in part theological. It's mostly practical. It isn't so that you have a right theological understanding of the second coming of Christ, although God knows I want you to have a right understanding of the second coming of Christ. Here, it is practical. We should be pure. We should be pure because we're in Christ. The Christian hope includes three things already mentioned. Number one, his appearing. Number two, our seeing him. And then number three, being like him. All of those things Appearing, seeing, being are supposed to find, provide the constituent elements that motivate us to go, oh, oh, then I, I need to be prepared. John Stott writes, quote, the Christian who fixes his hope, his confident expectation upon Christ's return will purify himself, not ceremonially, but morally. Purity, haganea, which is the Greek word, is primarily Freedom from stain. So in this passage, it means freedom from stain. What kind of stain? Moral stain. This is a holy character forged on the anvil of temptation. John has already told us that Jesus is righteous, so we should be righteous. Why? In order to go to heaven? No. In order to be children of God? No. In order to see him? No. In order to be like him? No. So that we won't be ashamed. The process of purification began the moment you repented of your sin and you received Christ. According to the Bible, the moment in your heart where you understood that you were a hopeless, helpless sinner, morally corrupt, spiritually bankrupt, incapable of saving yourself, whose only hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ, something began to change right at that very moment. Repentance, leading to confession, leading to identification. Purification begins with the blood of Jesus removing guilt and sin and the stain of sin. And then we walk in purity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, 
Keep yourselves pure, unquote. James 4.8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does all of this mean? It means that God plays a part in the purification. And you play a part in the purification. There's a role for you to play. It's interesting to me, I I read a story about a fashion store, I know it's hard to believe, but it was in Arlington, Texas. Again, I know it's hard to believe there is a fashion store in Arlington, Texas, but there is. And they ran a contest. They were going to give a prize, a $25 prize, to the dirtiest child in the town. There were only two rules. Number one, the dirt had to have been naturally accumulated. You couldn't artificially apply the dirt by parents or outsiders. In other words, it had to be honest dirt, naturally acquired through filthiness. And number two, the parents had to admit that their child was dirty. That makes sense, doesn't it? Had to be real dirt, and you had to admit that it was dirt. The reason why I thought that that was interesting is it's a lot like sinners. How do you come by your sin? Do you come by it naturally? Artificially? You see, we're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. And in order to clean up, we have to admit that we have to clean up. You know, in South America, there's a curious little spider which has its home in the water. It forms a bubble about itself, which like a diving belt, it will sink to the bottom of a pond or a river, and it can remain in there for hours, living below the water, yet breathing the air from above. And when it returns to the surface, the spider is perfectly dry. Not the slightest amount of moisture penetrates the bubble. It is in the water, but it's separate from it because it remains in the capsule. The Bible says that we're in the world, but we're not of it. We are in Christ. Paul says that we're already in heaven. We are made pure by the Holy Spirit, and we're being made pure. You know, the Bible teaches that God loves you and has a plan for you and a future that's set aside for you. A little four-year-old girl was hugging her small pretend baby doll. She looked up at her mom and said, Mama, I love them, I love them, I love them. But my dolls never love me back. What would you say to her? What would you say to her? Would you say something like this? You know, this reminds me, my dear sweet honey, of the world in which we live in, the people. There's a God who loves us. He loves us. He loves us. 
He loves us. But they never seem to love him back. Later, John will write, we love him because he first loved us. That's what he'll say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. John is going to make this argument. His love for us makes love for him from us possible. You might ask that question. How can I love God? You know, there was a man who was seriously ill who asked that question. In his heart, he felt little or no love for God. He talked with a friend who said, when I leave here, I expect to see my baby girl. I'll look into her sweet blue eyes. I'll listen to her goo and gah and make baby noises. And as tired as I am, that little baby will give me strength just to be with her. I love my baby more than I love my own life. But she loves me little. If my heart were breaking, it wouldn't disturb her rest. If my body were racked with agony and pain, she wouldn't interrupt her play. If I were dead, she would forget me in just a few days. Not to mention she's never given me one red cent. But she seems to have cost quite a bit. She's been a constant source of expense. He said, I'm not rich, but there's not enough money in the whole wide world to buy my child. And there's nothing that I wouldn't give for my child. And then he said, does she love or do I love her? Should I withhold my love until I know that she'll love me back? Should I wait for her to do something deserving of my love? course not. You understand my illustration. God's not dependent on your love. But when you're born again, when you experience God's love, it's going to be absolutely difficult, if not impossible, to hide your love for him. And so, our adventure in the third chapter begins. We're going to pray. We're going to have communion. Here's what I ask you to do. Pray, prepare your heart, and then retain the elements till we all have a chance to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do again thank you for Jesus, for his love, here in his love. And that while we were still sinners and rebellion and disobedience, God loved us. Not when we said something or did something. And Heavenly Father, I pray. Not that a person would be so afraid that they're going to go to hell that they, in desperation, cries out to you. But I pray that like myself, someone perhaps would entertain the notion that I entertained so long ago. Could God love somebody like me? Could God change somebody like me? Could God forgive somebody like me?
give me a brand new heart and a brand new soul and a brand new future. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray that, again, that you would draw that person to yourself, that you would speak to their heart. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would desperately desire to experience what it means to have their sins forgiven, but also what it means to be truly, clearly, unequivocally born again, filled with the Spirit of God, pouring your love into their hearts and securing their future forever. In Jesus' name.